You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary. To the sweetest girl I know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 80. This week, a big thank you goes out to Kieran, who chose to support the podcast on Patreon, where supporters get access to special premium episodes. The next episode should come out early next week, and we'll discuss the events in the various European countries that remained neutral during the war. Also, I've started posting the podcast episodes, starting with the Gallipoli episodes from last year on YouTube, so if that works better for you from a listening perspective, go check them out. This is the fifth and final episode on the Battle of Jutland, and last time we left off with the sun setting on the battle after Jellicoe turned away from Sheer and his destroyer torpedo attack. The battle would not be over when the light started to fail. The pursuit would now continue. There was still a chance that the British could either find the Germans in the dark or in the morning, preventing them from getting home. If Jellicoe and Beattie could do this, there would be another opportunity for the British to use their superior numbers against the German ships. In this episode, we will talk about the actions that occurred during the night. These actions were very confusing to the people participating in them, as this was a time before radar. There were special tactics and equipment that ships had specifically designed for night fighting, but it would be a time when the British numbers counted for very little. Since this is the last episode on Jutland, we will also do a final accounting of the lives and ships lost during the fighting. We will then finish off these episodes with some discussion about the huge volume of published literature on the battle, from both during and after the war. If there is one thing that British society in the early 20th century liked to discuss, it was the performance of the Royal Navy. And in the Battle of Jutland, they found enough content to keep that discussion going for a generation. As darkness fell on the ships, the British were pretty okay with their positions. Jellicoe, in particular, thought things were going pretty well, although he did not have the full information about the losses in the battle cruisers, which may have changed his mind. In particular, he did not know yet that the Queen Mary and the Indefatigable had exploded. At the moment, there was a more important question on Jellicoe's mind. Where would the Germans go now? Everybody knew that they would be heading home, but there were three different routes that they could take to get there. The first option would be for Sheer to steer southeast towards the Horn's Reef, and then back into the Jade through some minefields. The second option was also to the southeast towards Ems, then east into the Jade. The third option was to just go directly to the south, to go to Heligoland, and then, again, to the Jade, where his bases were. Jellicoe had to guess which one Shear would head for, and then try to cut him off on his way there. With where he thought Shear was, he was already in position to block the Germans getting to Horn's Reef, or so he thought. 
Because of this, Jellicoe decided to head south in the hope of staying between Sheer and Ems, and also with the goal of getting between him and Heligoland. After deciding on the general direction for the fleet to go, Jellicoe also sent out a few orders to prepare his ships for the night. The first stated that he had no intention of fighting during the darkness. He actually wanted to actively avoid fighting during the night and instead hold off everything until the morning. Both the Germans and the British agreed that the Germans were better equipped for tr- and trained for night fighting. And as I mentioned, the British numbers would be far harder to bring to bear against any German ships. Jellicoe also shifted his formation out of the long line that they'd been in earlier, and instead into three columns of eight ships each, each column steaming about a mile apart. The hope was that this would make the whole fleet more maneuverable. After receiving Jellicoe's order, Beatty moved his ships to stay ahead of Jellicoe and put them on the exact same course. Through the night, the men were kept at their action stations, just in case anything should happen. And on all the ships, food in the form of sandwiches, corned beef, and tins of salmon were brought around to the men, who I'm sure were very thankful for the sustenance. There was also a helping of Royal Navy hot cocoa, which the sailors called Kai. My research into Kai and its makeup have led mostly to dead ends, and if somebody out there knows the exact makeup of this drink, please, please contact me. My most authoritative source is a random person on a random internet forum that gives the following recipe for the drink. You take a small bar of very dark chocolate and a mug of hot water. You put this in a saucepan and heat it until the chocolate is melted. Then you add a can of condensed milk and you bring that to boil. And then you serve in mugs with copious amounts of sugar as desired. I believe this creates a mixture that is quite thick, and I bet it was quite tasty, and its warmth was welcome in the middle of the cold North Sea late at night, after a long day of fighting. On the German side, Scheer also had to decide where he was going. Before he made this decision and changed his course, both fleets were actually sailing in exactly the same direction, with the British slightly ahead and to the east. Scheer decided that he would head for Horn's Reef, and at 9.10pm, he sent out orders to all of his ships to put this into effect. Quote, Battle fleets course southeast by a quarter east. This course is to be maintained. Speed 16 knots. Scheer was hoping to slip past the Grand Fleet completely unnoticed, but he knew that he might have to fight during the night. The inclusion that the course was to be maintained meant that no matter what happened, the ships should keep sailing. Shear was willing to sacrifice any losses during the, during the night to reduce the chance of another daylight action. After the Germans made their course change, the two groups of ships were essentially making two sides of a very long and narrow V. The Germans were going slightly faster, but the British started out a bit ahead. For the rest of the night, the two groups would slowly close in on each other, with the British passing through the bottom of the V before the Germans, and then the Germans passing through behind them. This meant that the V would become an X, and without either side knowing really anything about the other. All through the evening, the men back in room 40 were intercepting and deciphering the German wireless messages that Scheer was using to direct his ships. Jellicoe was handed the information at 10.41pm. This would be when the consequences of that earlier miscommunication would truly be felt. If you remember earlier, there had been false reports to Jellicoe that the German main fleet was still in port. When this and other messages were proven completely false, Jellicoe almost completely lost faith in the intelligence he was getting from the Admiralty. 
So now, when he was given new information uh, from the same source, he was very skeptical. While he probably would not have changed his course either way, it did mean that when there was firing in the rear of the British fleet during the night, Jellicoe did not believe that it was the German main fleet, which he may have if he actually believed the information that was being sent to him. Instead, he believed it was just like a diversionary destroyer tech, nothing to be concerned about. Oddly enough, one of the messages that was completely true was not even forwarded to Jellicoe, and this was the message sent by Scheer to arrange for Zeppelin coverage over Horn's Reef for his approach. This was extremely important, and should have been forwarded to Jellicoe because it would have told Jellicoe exactly where Scheer was going. However, it's unknown if Jellicoe would have believed this message and acted upon it. All this really comes down to those miscommunications earlier in the battle that didn't have a huge effect then, but definitely have a huge effect now. I think it also points to the relative newness of admirals and intelligence services being able to communicate about enemy movements in real time, and a slight mistrust in general between the two groups. Before I started researching for this episode, I did not know how naval night fighting occurred in the early 20th century. It was very different than what is done now or even in World War II because of the advent of radar, which completely removed the need to visually see the enemy. In fact, during World War II, some navies even had auto-correcting fire control computers that could adjust future shots while shells were almost still in the air. All very impressive. And now, if you're looking for a good book on World War II naval battles, I suggest Last Stand of the Tin Can Sailors by James Hornsfisher, which covers the Battle of Samar. However, this is not a World War II podcast. It's a good book. You should read it. And in 1916, none of this fancy radar stuff existed yet. This meant that there were a few problems that necessitated some specific procedures to allow for nighttime fleet actions. The first problem was simply telling friendly and enemy ships apart. Jellicoe would mention this as one of the primary reasons that he did not want to pursue any actions during the night. Quote, our own destroyers would be no effective antidote at night since they would certainly be taken for enemy destroyers and fired on by our own ships. The general method of identifying ships in the dark was to flash signals via lamp and then expect a very specific set of signals in return to confirm the identity of the ship. If the proper signal was not sent, you could assume that the ship was hostile. This process would be used in the upcoming action. But this was not a foolproof method, though. In fact, during the actions that we're about to talk about, some of the German ships actually caught on to the first couple of light signals that the British were using to identify friendly ships, and were able to play some games with that at certain points in the battle to make some British ships think that they were friendly, when in fact they were German ships getting ready to shoot at them. But if a ship was able to figure out that another ship was an enemy, how did it shoot at it? Well, first of all, it's important to remember that the engagement distances were much, much smaller at night, rarely more than the distance that searchlights could illuminate. Searchlights on the ships were both good and bad. They were great for illuminating like a flashlight, a nearby target maybe, but they broadcast the light's position far further than it allowed the men to see. Much like taking a flashlight out at night, it lets you see a little bit in front of you, but somebody can see you far faster than you can see them. To try and counter this problem with searchlights, they were often almost entirely covered except for a very small area of light that would shine out in a very concentrated beam. 
If a ship was spotted by this small beam, the searchlights would be unveiled completely and the light would shine out in full force while the guns started firing. For the two navies at Jutland, this was the plan for both navies. But it was well known that the Germans were better at night fighting, just straight up better. This came first from their training, they focused far more on night actions than the British, but also from their tools. Jellicoe would record that, quote, It was known to me that neither our searchlights nor their control arrangements were at this time of the best type, end quote. With an advantage in searchlights, the Germans could come out massively ahead during the night, but they did not really want to engage in heavy fighting because the first priority for them was simply to get away. For the night of cruising, Jellicoe had put some of his destroyers behind the Grand Fleet to act as part of their screen, and a bit before midnight the leading elements of the high seas fleet started to run into these ships. Following the established process, the British destroyers waited until the ships got close and then flashed the recognition signals. The Germans, realizing very quickly that it was not their recognition signal, opened fire with three battleships and three light cruisers almost immediately and they all started firing at the little destroyer Tipperary. Unfortunately for the men on board, it was not a long way to Tipperary, and within four minutes, just one German battleship was able to empty 155.9-inch shells at the destroyer. The British destroyers did the only thing that they could do in this situation. They fired their torpedoes and tried to disengage. Here is Robert Massey from Castles of Steel, describing the actions of just one of these destroyers. Quote, the destroyer Spitfire, which had been just astern of the Tipperary, found herself confronting the dreadnought Nassau. Tormented by the torpedoes, Nassau turned at full speed to ram. The two ships collided port bow to port bow, the impact rolling the destroyer over, almost, but not quite enough, to swamp her. Then, alongside her little antagonist, Nassau fired her two huge forward turret guns, she was too close, the gun barrels would not depress sufficiently to hit the destroyer with shells, but even so, Spitfire bore the weight of Nassau's rage. The concussion of muzzle blasts at close range and at maximum depression swept away the destroyer's bridge, foremast, funnels, boats, and searchlight platform. Everybody on the bridge except for the captain and two seamen were killed. Then with the screech of tearing metal, the dreadnought surged down the destroyer's port side, bumping, scraping, and stripping away everything, including boats and divots. Somehow the Spitfire actually survived this encounter, and even though it could make only six knots, it would arrive back in port 36 hours later. Unfortunately, five other destroyers were not as lucky. Only eight torpedoes were fired at the Germans, and none of them found their mark. After this encounter, that group of destroyers was completely scattered. It was not able to regroup during the night. Around this time, the British armored cruiser, the Black Prince, somehow ended up running smack into the entire German fleet. This is likely where some of those light signal games came into play. It did not answer when it was challenged for the recognition signal, which caused the Germans to unveil their searchlights to illuminate the British ship, and at just 1,000 yards, they opened fire. It was almost impossible to miss, and it took just four minutes before the ship exploded, with all hands lost. Overall, neither of these actions were horrible for either side. A few destroyers and cruisers were not a huge price for the British to pay, in this case, if they had been able to capitalize on the information that the destroyers could have provided. However, closer to the front of the Grand Fleet, there seemed to be no reaction to the clashes in the rear, which begs the question why. 
the destroyer actions were not unknown to the other British ships. In fact, while it was happening, there was a very powerful group of British ships that was actually quite close. The Marlborough, who had been hit by that torpedo, which we talked about last episode, had dropped back in line a bit, being able to make only 17 knots. The the dreadnoughts of both Marlborough's division and the 5th Battle Squadron, which was just three ships now with the Warspite on its way back to Britain, had stayed with the Marlborough. Because they were slightly slower than the current fleet speed, they were now perfectly positioned to attack the Germans. The Malaya, the last ship in the line, could clearly see the action. However, Evan Thomas did not report the observation that came from the Malaya to Jellicoe. He would write years later on why he did not forward this information that, quote, whether the various observations of enemy ships made by ships of our battle fleet ought to have reported to the commander-in-chief. I was on the bridge all night with my admiral, and we came to the conclusion that the situation was known to the CNC, and that the attacks were according to plan. A stream of wireless reports from ships in company with the commander-in-chief seemed superfluous and uncalled for. The unnecessary use of wireless was severely discouraged as being likely to disclose our position to the enemy. This may have been an error in judgment, but cannot be termed amazing neglect. By 2 a.m., after dispersing the first set of British destroyers, Shear had just one set of British ships between him and being completely past the British fleet, and right at 2 a.m., he would encounter them. This time, the six destroyers that were involved were able to get off 17 torpedoes at ranges between 2,000 and 3,000 yards, but they once again all missed the German dreadnoughts. They did manage to find a less important target, though, the pre-dreadnought Palmer. The The ship quickly broke in two and sank with no survivors. Overall, the fact that only the British destroyers were able to engage the Germans during the night, at a time when it would have been very easy for Jellicoe to reorient his fleet to engage during the night or better position himself for the next morning, was a massive missed opportunity. Lieutenant William Jameson, who was on one of the British dreadnoughts, would describe the situation that many would question after the battle. Quote, a violent action flared up in the darkness to the northwest passed across our wake, and died away towards the east. Something tremendous was going on only a few miles away, but to our astonishment, it surprises me still, the battle fleet continued to steam south. End quote. After making his way through the second destroyer attack, Shear could take a nice sigh of relief, even if he didn't know it at the time. Shortly after, though, he knew that he was probably out of danger when he arrived at the entrance of the German minefields. For the German ships, getting through the minefields was a great moment. Some of them barely made it. The battlecruisers were the worst off. Some of them had fallen behind the rest of the ships in the dark, specifically the Lutzow and the Seidlitz. The Seidlitz was able to continue to limp towards port, ending up going around the British fleet in the opposite direction of the rest of the German ships, somehow. Luck was definitely on the side of the sidelets, and the ship was able to continue and was successfully run aground near the Wesser River. The Lutzow, on the other hand, was not quite so lucky. It became clear to the captain of the Lutzow about 1 a.m. that the ship would not be able to continue, as there was more than 8,000 tons of water already in the hull, and that number was just increasing as time went by. The captain had to order the crew to abandon ship onto four destroyers that were ordered alongside for the purpose, and once all men were evacuated, the Lutzow was scuttled. 
it would be the only German battlecruiser that was sunk during the battle. Back with the high seas fleet, though, at the entrance of the minefields, Scheer ordered the remaining battlecruisers through first, before following them up with the pre-dreadnoughts, and then finally the rest of the fleet. On the British side, Jellicoe hoped throughout the night that he would be able to resume action in the morning. However, when the sun finally came up, the sky was gray, and the fog made visibility only about 4,000 yards. Under these conditions, Jellicoe felt that he was unable to push forward into the area around Horn's Reef. The danger from German mines and destroyers was judged to just be too great. All that could be done now was to turn north, go over the area of the battle to pick off any stragglers, and to rescue any survivors before heading home. Jellicoe radioed the Admiralty to let them know he was coming home, and all over the British ships, the path home was a time for rest for the sailors who had been at battle stations for almost a day. Beatty would be recorded as saying on his way back after slumping in his chart house, there must be something wrong with our ships. And the disappointment on all of the British ships was palpable. One great grim task remained for the men of the Royal Navy before they returned home. It was the tradition of that navy that all dead sailors had to be buried at sea before the ships returned to port. It was a long day of burials as their bodies were committed to the deep. And with that, the Battle of Jutland was over. In terms of numbers, the Battle of Jutland ended with the following counts. On the German side, there were 3,058 casualties, with one battlecruiser, the Lutzow, one pre-dreadnought, the Pommern, four light cruisers, and eight destroyers sank. For the British, there were 6,768 casualties, with three battlecruisers, the Indefatigable, the Queen Mary, and the Invincible, three armored cruisers, and eight destroyers sank. The huge difference in casualties on the British side was almost entirely due to the fact that the three battlecruisers simply blew up, killing all on board. The British lost more ships, however, on the day after the battle, the British still came out ahead. The German battlecruisers were so heavily damaged that they would be stuck in dry dock for months. Even some of the German dreadnoughts would be stuck under repair for the immediate future. And while this was cheaper, the British sort of had money to spend at this point. And on the other side, the British were back to full strength quite quickly. The drastic advantage that Britain had in shipbuilding capacity is best shown in the fact that for several of the ships that were damaged at Jutland, when they arrived at the dry dock for repairs, they were instantly replaced by ships that were coming out of the very same docks. By the end of 1916, the British had a larger advantage than what they had before Jutland. So let's talk about battlecruisers. The battlecruiser as a concept came to prominence in the years before the First World War, thanks partly to Lord Fisher of the Royal Navy, who championed them quite hard. The general idea was that the battlecruisers were fast enough to catch any dreadnought that was currently on the seas. They were therefore very useful for scouting purposes. They were then also equipped with guns large enough that if those dreadnoughts were found, they could be engaged while larger ships caught up. However, at the time, this was only possible by making sacrifices. For the British, they made the decision to sacrifice armor and survivability. They believed that their speed would protect them from most of the shells that were coming their way. On the German side, they made the opposite decision, and instead of sacrificing armor and protection, they sacrificed hitting power with smaller and fewer guns. 
In fact, the Durflinger had roughly the same armor as the Iron Duke, Jellicoe's flagship at Jutland. With these facts in mind, it's probably easy to see why the German battlecruisers at Jutland seem to be able to survive massively more punishment than their British counterparts. World War I was the War of the Battlecruisers. As by 1939, the concept was very much out of vogue, although they were, did still exist in the Royal Navy. Jutland would go down as their greatest battle, since they participated in more fighting than any other ships that were present, which inevitably leads to discussion of why the British battlecruisers had a tendency to explode. The root of this problem was way back in the pre-war gunnery competitions held by the Royal Navy, where the men were encouraged to get as many rounds downrange as possible during the allotted time. This caused the crews to continually find ways to optimize the delivery of shells and powder to the guns. One of the ways that this was done was to find ways to get around a few safety features. Like, say, the fire doors that were put in place to protect the magazine from the explosion, from explosions in the turret. Eventually, many of these doors were just completely removed, and when the battle would start, they would be sorely missed. This actually had happened to some degree in the German Navy as well. This wasn't strictly a British problem. But whereas the British battlecruisers did not have any problems before Jutland, the Germans did. Back at the Battle of Dogger Bank, a British shell had penetrated one of Seidlitz's turrets, and the ship almost exploded. Only a very quick flooding of the magazine saved the ship. The Germans, realizing how close the situation was made sure that all of their anti-flash and fire doors were in place and in good condition, and also educated all the sailors about the importance of these protective devices. The British did not have this lesson to learn before Jutland, although they certainly learned it afterwards. All three of the British battlecruisers would be destroyed because of this exact problem. For the battlecruisers as a whole, though, as I mentioned, they would fall out of favor after the war for a few reasons. Dreadnoughts, or battleships as they would be called, just became faster, and it became clear that the speed of the glass cannon battlecruisers was no longer a sufficient advantage to make up for their downsides. The last battlecruiser, the HMS Hood, would be created for the Royal Navy in 1920, and would find its end at the hands of the Bismarck during the Second World War. On the German side, the evaluation of the battle resulted in the two commanders receiving very different grades. Hipper was almost universally praised for the performance of his ships. They had done extremely well. They had landed many hits on Beatty's ships early in the fighting, and had been responsible for most of the damage caused to the British ships as a whole. Their effectiveness had only been reduced after the arrival of Evan Thomas, when they began to receive a lot of damage. However, the survivability of the German ships was shown to be a great asset, and it proved the German theory of battlecruisers to have a lot of merit. To some extent, you could say that Hipper was the only commander who won this fa- his phase of the battle, with the sinking of the two battlecruisers. I do not think there is too much of an argument that he did get the better of Beatty early in the fighting, before more British ships appeared, even though from the very beginning he was outnumbered. Shear, on the other hand, came under far more criticism than his battlecruiser commander. His position had not been great from the start. He had the smaller fleet, and it's difficult to see how he could have come out as a victor. However, much of the criticism did not focus on this, and instead focused on his second turn back into the British. While it turned out okay because his ship survived, it was a huge risk that could have had horrible consequences. 
Even with some of this criticism, Scheer would continue to command the high seas fleet and would continue to perform well for the rest of the war. He would continue to try and find ways to put the Royal Navy at a disadvantage without too much success before 1918. For the Royal Navy, Jutland would be a topic of conversation for the next two decades. The biggest reason for its much greater emphasis in Britain was due to the expectations. The Royal Navy was expected to find its enemy, engage it using its superior power, and destroy it. Any other outcome was not sufficient. It was the entire reason that the Royal Navy existed, the entire reason that so much money had been spent on its ships, its training, its men. The news of the battle reached London on the morning of June the 6th. Jellicoe would write that my luck is out for the present. And there were several problems that quickly came to light. The first of which was the battlecruiser problems mentioned above. But this was not the only problem. Another one was some problems with the armor-piercing ammunition used by the ships. These shells had a tendency to explode the instant they hit the armor, instead of having a delayed detonation that allowed them to penetrate some armor and into the softer parts of the ships before exploding. While these types of problems were discussed a bit after the battle, and it generally quickly were rectified, the controversy would not end there. The longest-lasting discussion would be focused on finding blame for the failure of the Grand Fleet to completely destroy the High Seas Fleet. The two obvious focuses for this blame were Beatty and Jellicoe, and after the war, they would also get involved in the argument. During the war, both men kept their thoughts generally to themselves, or at least did not make their thoughts public, but post-war, completely different situation. Beatty was angry because he felt that because Jellicoe had been so cautious in the latter stages before darkness set in, that Beatty had been robbed of his great victory, which he obviously deserved, according to Beatty. Jellicoe was heavily criticized for his decision to turn away from the German fleet during the torpedo attack, and also criticized for failing to be able to re-engage the German ships again afterwards. Much of the post-war literature fell strongly on the side against Jellicoe, and this has affected historians and how they portrayed the battle to this very day. One of the reasons for this was Beatty's previous reputation for from the other battles earlier in the war, which put him in a much better place in terms of public relations than his superior. If you remember, in all of those previous battles, Beatty had been the only one that was really engaged. As soon as Jellicoe showed up, the Germans ran away. Beatty had also cultivated much better connections in the press, which gave him a head start in shaping the story. Recent works on the battle have tended to focus on a more middle ground in their valuation of the fighting, with the blame being put more on the environmental situation instead of the British commanders for not being able to close in and deal with the German fleet. It was an extremely important 48 hours for both fleets in the North Sea, and it would be the topic of study for countless historians ever since, so you can find thousands of books on it. In the end, it would be known just as much for its indecisive result as for the actions that took place on the North Sea. And this brings us to the end of our episodes on Jutland. I hope you've enjoyed our trip to the North Sea, and next week we'll go to a city that we have not visited up to this point in the show, because in the spring of 1916 there would be an uprising of rebels in the British Empire. However, the city was not in one of the empire's far-flung colonies, but was instead much closer to home, in Dublin, Ireland. <laughs>